Hi, my name is Ashton. My name is Kathy. Hannah. Jessica Van Geest. My name is Brenda. It's Irma. It's John. Owen. Kathy. My name is Kelly. Linda. My name is David. My name is Roseanne. My name is Karen. My name is Dr. Stephanie Gray. My name is Kelly and my everyday deed. And my everyday deed. And my everyday deed is my everyday deed. It is the small, everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. I love that quote. I find it super inspiring uh, until I took some time to actually think about what it was saying this week. Uh, and all of a sudden I discovered that I, I'm not sure how I feel about being called ordinary folk. Um, I think I was raised as a part of a generation that taught us that being ordinary wasn't the goal. We kind of have a, an ambiguous relationship with the idea of being ordinary, right? Like if I were, think about this, somebody comes to me and asks me about you, right? And they say, tell me about so-and-so, you know, what are they like? And I go, meh, they're kind of ordinary. I think that, that, that's not necessarily a compliment, right? We weren't we weren't, our culture doesn't raise us to be ordinary. We live in like this, be extraordinary, shine like the stars stand out from the crowd, purple participation ribbon culture that tells us that we're supposed to be extraordinary, right? In the 1950s, there was a, right around the time Tolkien was writing that quote, there was a study done of undergraduates, university undergraduates, and, and they were asked as a part of the study, how many people think of themselves as being somebody important? Anyone want to guess? Turn to your neighbor, tell them how many, per, what percentage of undergrads you think thought that they were important. It was 12% in 1950s. The study was done all over again in the 1980s. Now turn to your neighbor and tell them what you think the number was in the 1980s. 30 years later, 80% of, of university undergrads thought that they were important people. And on the one hand, that's a fantastic. You're an important person, right? You're special and unique and important and God loves you. And yes, all of those things are true. But this is, we're raised to believe that we're extraordinary. And yet at the same time, when I say we have an ambiguous relationship with being ordinary, the same time, I think most of us are afraid that were somehow less than extraordinary, maybe even less than ordinary. There's a thing now. I didn't know this was a thing. There's a thing now called Facebook depression. Based on some studies that were done in 2013, turns out that uh, a group of about 90 women uh, were exposed to about 10 minutes of time on their Facebook feed. 10 minutes of time on your Facebook feed actually has a measurable decrease. It instigates a measurable decrease in your feelings of self-worth and self-esteem and so on. As you look at you know, what we do on Facebook, right? We compare all of the behind the scenes shots of our own life with everybody else's highlight reel. And all of a sudden we begin to feel less than adequate, less than average. We feel less than extraordinary. 
And then we carry that sense into our relationship with God and we begin to wonder whether God sees us that way and we begin to wonder whether God could even really use a person like us. And that's what this series is all about, is speaking right into that fear or suspicion that we are the kind of people who are not usable by God. Nate opened this series, this Hope Live series last week, by talking about the fact that the way that God has chosen to work in the world is by using the everyday deed of ordinary people to bring the change that God wants to see in the world. Kind of introduced us to that idea. He called it the Jesus Revolution. Where Jesus is, you know, the power and the source of what God is doing in the world. He is the light that is breaking into the darkness. And it's when people like us live a life with Jesus, in Jesus, because of Jesus, for Jesus, out of the power of Jesus, that God begins to do the thing of bringing change into the world. And they began the conversation last week by saying that even in a season like this, like 2017, which at times can feel extraordinarily chaotic, extraordinarily chaotic and dark, um, we are not living through a period of any greater darkness than what they would have known in the ancient world. In fact, in some ways, in the ancient world, they lived with injustice and oppression to degrees that we can barely even begin to imagine. And that is true in the story that I want to begin with this morning, in Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 1. So we have a Bible, you can turn to Judges chapter 6. It's very close to the beginning of the Bible. And this is what it says in Judges chapter 6, verse 1. It says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites invaded the country. They camped in the land and ruined the crops. And they didn't spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. So Midian impoverished the Israelites so they cried out to God for help. At this time in Israel's history, they're very early on in their history. They're not a, a formal nation at this point. They're more like a loose federation of tribes that are all kind of living in the same area in what is modern day Israel or Palestine. And um, they're just trying to figure out how to eke out a survival in this new land in which they live. They're learning how to farm the land. They're raising crops and so on. But every year, the Bible says, for seven years, just as the crops were emerging from the ground or as the livestock were beginning to multiply, their neighbors, the Midianites, would invade. They'd cross the border and they'd descend on Israel's territory and they'd destroy all of their crops and they'd slaughter all of their animals and they would take all the plunder and they'd go back back to their home country, their home territory. And they would leave Israel impoverished and famished, like stupid levels of poverty, like malnourishment, distended stomach levels of poverty, starvation level poverty. And Israel, it says, cried out to God. And God heard their cry and decided to intervene in their situation by sending a guy named Gideon. Now, Gideon is probably the most unlikely hero in Israel's history. This is a guy, you couldn't imagine somebody who was less equipped to be the person to rescue Israel from this injustice. On the one hand, I mean, Gideon was a person whose whole life was beset by fear. In verse 11, it introduces Gideon. 
And it says, Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now you have to understand, it says Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. Threshing wheat is something you do out in the open. You have in your field, you have a threshing floor and you bring all of your harvested wheat kernels, you throw them on the threshing floor and you roll them out to separate the kernel of the, of the wheat from the husk and then you throw it all up in the air and the husk gets blown away by the wind and the kernel falls back down and now you've got all of your wheat kernels and you can do with them whatever you want, sell them or grind it into flour or whatever it is that you're going to do with them. But that's how you thresh. You do it out in the middle of a field where the wind can blow the husks away. But that's not what Gideon's doing. Gideon is threshing his wheat on a wine press. The wine press is the exact opposite of openness. It's actually a deep vat with a slope floor. You put all the grapes in it. You stomp them out. You grind them out until all the juice runs down the floor through the drain. And you capture it in large containers where you, will, you, know, you make the recipe for wine. You allow it to ferment. But being in a wine press means that you are hidden within a large container. And he's threshing the wheat, throwing it up just above the lid of the, of the wine press to blow the chaff away. But he's, essentially, he's hiding from the Midianites. It's a guy who's, whose life is beset by fear. As you read the story in these two chapters, Gideon is a person five or six more times it references just how afraid he is of what's going on around him. So the man is, is entirely terrified. Secondly, he's entirely unqualified. In verse 14, it says, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. The angel comes to Gideon and says, God's chosen you to save Israel. And Gideon says, that doesn't even make any sense. Like I come from a fairly middle of the road kind of tribe. There's nothing really remarkable about us. But our clan in the midst of the tribe, we're like the poorest and smallest clan in the entire tribe. Nobody looks to us for leadership. And in my own family within our clan, I'm the youngest, least influential person in our entire family. I am the wrong person for the job. He's terrified He's unqualified. Thirdly, he's got a weak faith. The Lord answered, verse 16, I'll be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And Gideon replied, if, now if I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. There's a guy who's just had a vision of an angel, according to the story, right? He's in a wine press, threshing grain, and all of a sudden an angel appears in the wine press and says, God has spoken to me, and he's sending you to defeat the Midianites. And Gideon's like, yeah, that's a good story. Uh, can you prove it? And, the angel, and so the angel says, yeah, like whatever you need. And so Gideon goes and he gets this uncooked meal. And he brings it back to the angel who's now sitting, you know, under a tree. And he puts it on this rock. And the angel touches the rock with the staff. And the fire explodes out of the rock. And it burns up all the food. And then the angel vanishes. And Gideon then asks for two more miracles. Just like, this is not a guy 
who is, has a strong faith. He's terrified, unqualified, and weak-faithed. And God chose him to rescue Israel from the Midianites. Sure enough, as the story goes, the crops come up, Midian attacks again. It says they descended on Israel like a swarm of locusts, innumerable numbers of soldiers. And Gideon, kind of now all inspired and motivated by this conversation, he blows his trumpet and he summons men, not just from his tribe, but from all the surrounding tribes. And he calls them all to war against the Midianites. And guess what? 32,000 men answer the call. And Gideon's mustered this army of 32,000 men. And they go into this valley just on the other side of the hill from the Midianites. And they all camp out. And there they are, 32,000 men camped out, ready to fight, and the Midianites are just on the other side of the hill. And God comes to Gideon and he says, I can't work with a group this size. You got to get rid of some of these people. And Gideon's like, what? And God says, no, stand up and make an announcement. If you're scared, just go home. And so Gideon gets up and he says, listen, if anybody's afraid, you can you don't have to be here. You can just go home. 22,000 of the 32,000 soldiers just like, thanks. That's what I wanted to hear. Pack up and they're gone. And Gideon's left with a troop of 10,000 soldiers to fight this army on the other side of the hill that is innumerable in size, like a swarm of locusts. And then God comes to Gideon again. He says, geez, this is still a lot of men. You need to get rid of, uh, of more of them. Take the soldiers all down to the stream and get a drink of water. And everybody who like kneels down and, and scoops up water with their hands, he says, I want you to send them home. Everybody who just sort of leans over and laps up the water like a dog, they're the ones who can stay. So Gideon takes them down to the stream. 9,700 guys scoop up water like this and they all get sent home. And Gideon's left standing there with a, man, with a group of 300 men to fight the Midianite army who's just on the other side of that hill. In the middle of that night, God comes to Gideon. He says, now's the time. So Gideon gets up his men. He breaks the squad into three groups of 100. And he gives every one of them a trumpet, a torch that's lit, and a clay pot to put over the torch to keep it dark. And he says, I want you to spread out, fan out around the Midianite camp and wait for my signal, then do exactly what I do. And he waits till they're all in position. It's now the middle of the night. And Gideon at like two o'clock in the morning pulls out his trumpet and he blows it as loud as he can and he smashes the clay pot and all 300 soldiers blow their trumpets and smash the clay pots so that all of a sudden the night sky is illuminated by all of these torches and they all start screaming this war cry for God and for Gideon. Well, the Midianite army is startled awake at 2.30 in the morning and they look up and they find themselves surrounded by a ring of fire. There's just soldiers everywhere and their trumpets blaring and people are screaming, for God and for Gideon. And they they panic and they grab their swords and they just start fighting anybody in the dark. And it turns out they're fighting each other. Nobody rushed into the camp. And the Midianite soldiers are slaughtering each other and the ones that can get away race for the hills and they escape over the border of Israel and they never come back again. And the entire battle is decided. Not because Israel had a bigger army, not because Gideon was a military genius, but through the everyday deeds of ordinary folk. 
God pushed back the darkness in Israel. And this, my friends, this is the whole point of this series. This is as true about us in our day as it was about Gideon in his day. This is actually the only way that God works is through the everyday deeds of ordinary people. That's it. And I could show you a thousand examples out of scripture, but how about I just take the most prominent one, the disciples of Jesus, right? Jesus comes to earth 2,000 years ago at Christmas because he's gonna launch this revolution of love where God's love reclaims the world in God's name, invites people back into faith in Jesus and to live a life of loving God and loving themselves and loving each other and loving the world. That's what Jesus came. And in order to launch this revolution, he surrounds himself with 12 guys who are gonna be, who are gonna like run point on starting the revolution. Who are these guys? Well, it's a small handful of tradespeople. Some fishermen. Um, there's uh, one guy's a political political agitator, protester. Uh, one guy is kind of like this combination of tax accountant and collection agency thug. Uh, there's a couple of introverts who you don't really hear from a lot. A lot of guys are almost anonymous. You have their names and you have do nothing about their story. Some of the guys, they, two different books report two different names. You don't even really know what their name is. They're virtually anonymous. The book of Acts is the story of the early church about how after Jesus' death and resurrection, these 12 disciples began to turn Jerusalem and the nation of Israel upside down with the message of Jesus. And at one point, they're creating such turmoil in the city of Jerusalem, they get hauled in in front of the authorities. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says, when, they, when the authorities saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. The authorities bring these guys in and the observation they make is that these are unschooled, ordinary men. The most remarkable thing about them is how unremarkable they are. The, the word unschooled, um, the Greek word that translates into unschooled literally means ungrammatical. They hadn't been taught. They, they, hadn't, been, they hadn't gone to school. They hadn't learned anything. My favorite is the word for ordinary. It's a Greek word, idiotes, and it means uh, to be inexperienced, untrained, unskilled, unfit, unworthy, unremarkable. A lot of uns in there, idiotes. We actually get our English word idiot from the Greek word. So literally, the disciples of Jesus, who are they? Who are these people that God used to turn the world upside down? They were a bunch of uneducated idiots that God used to change the world. That's the way God works. And in fact, it was the fact that they were uneducated idiots that qualified them to be used by God. Their unqualification was their qualification. Right? It says in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1, brothers and sisters, think about what you were when you were called by God to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Uh, not many of you were influential. Uh, not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The Apostle Paul says, you know, when I, when I think about, you know, who you are. Uh, not a lot of you are too smart. And not a lot of leaders 
among you. Nobody really significant or important. You're just sort of a bunch of nobodies. Which is exactly why God picked you. To be the people that he calls to himself and uses to change the world. Your lack of qualification is the only qualification you need. The thing about your spiritual resume that makes you feel most uncomfortable around other people is precisely the thing that qualifies you to be used by God. Now, I will say, I mean, I got to be honest with the text. The person who wrote those words, the Apostle Paul, is a genius, He's one of these, you know, double PhD by the age of 30, a PhD in theology and in classical studies. Paul was a genius. But by Paul's own admission, it was his actually his personal and moral background that disqualified him from being used by God. He had made a bunch of really bad choices in his past. And right to the end of his life, he said, the very fact that God could use a person like me is evidence that God can use anybody. It's your lack of qualification that qualifies you. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't, you know, hone our gifts and our skills. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try or work hard or it doesn't mean we shouldn't be fully devoted to participating in what God is doing. It just means that God's kingdom coming in the world doesn't rest on our shoulders, on our ability, on our capability. It doesn't rest on how qualified we are. In fact, precisely the opposite in 1 Corinthians, it says that God chose those who don't have the qualifications in order to shame those that do. That it's the fact that God could work through nobodies that proves to the world that God is he's the one doing something. Right? This is exactly what he says to Gideon. When he comes to Gideon and he says, listen, you've got too many men. I can't work with a group this size. And basically, if you go read it in Judges 7, what he says is, if you go fight against Midian with this many people, and you defeat their army with your army, people are just going to say, well, Israel had a better army. So I'm going to make it impossible for people to say that. I'm going to change the playing field so that it is so handicapped, you are so disadvantaged in the battle, that when people see you defeat the Midianites, they'll say only God could have done that. Which is precisely the point. That it is God who brings God's kingdom into the world. And he uses unqualified, ordinary people like us, uneducated idiots, terrified, unqualified, weak-faithed people, so that everybody can see that it is God who is doing it. Right? We got to burst this bubble that God can only use extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. I think sometimes we, we buy into that myth a little bit because of, because of Jesus, right? Like you put your faith in Jesus, you ask God to forgive your sins, and you say, I'm going to put my trust in you, and I want my life to be about you, I want you to be transforming me into a person who looks like you. And then we ask ourselves this question, you know, in every situation, you should ask yourself the question, what would Jesus do? Right, well, the problem with the question, what would Jesus do, is that I am definitively not Jesus. And if you doubt that statement, ask my wife. She will verify for you. I'm not Jesus. Like, look at Jesus. 
Right? He shows up in this miraculous birth. He lives this miraculous life. He does these miraculous deeds and this miraculous teaching. He dies with this miraculous courage and is miraculously raised from the dead. Jesus is the most miraculous human being that has ever lived. How can I do what Jesus did? I can't be like that. And the funny thing about what the Bible says about Jesus is that the truth is that yes, you can. In John chapter 5, this is what Jesus says. It says, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. What can Jesus do by himself? Nothing. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus says, listen, you think I'm doing all this stuff? I'm not doing this stuff. I can't do anything on my own. The only thing I can do is stay in vital relationship with the God who loves me. And God does this stuff through me. On his own, Jesus can do nothing. Which is encouraging because that's precisely what I can do on my own. It's absolutely nothing. The qualification that Jesus has is the same qualification that the disciples had. And that is that they were living in a dynamic, vital relationship with God. They, had, they noted that these men had been with Jesus. That was the only remarkable thing about them. Jesus says, I stay connected to God. That's the only remarkable thing about me. God delights in using unqualified people. So that it is perfectly obvious that it is God who is at work. And he invites perfectly unqualified, terrified, weak faith people, uneducated idiots to do nothing remarkable to everyday deeds. God doesn't call us to do anything massive. He calls us to do small things in his power and strength. Right? He doesn't ask us to do what we can't do. Can Gideon organize an army and militarily defeat the Midianites? No, he can't. He doesn't have the ability to do that. Can Gideon smash a pot and light a torch and blow a trumpet and yell at the top of his voice? Yeah, he can do those things. Can God use that to defeat the Midianites and push back the darkness in Israel? To overcome injustice? Yes, he can. Can God um, use us to solve the problem of peace in the Middle East or to, to figure out the situation of world hunger? No, he can't. we can't do that. Can we do what God has actually asked us to do? James chapter 127. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Can, can we... Uh, make a commitment to care for weak and vulnerable, marginalized people in their desperate need? Yeah, we can do that. And will God use that to change the world? He's been doing that for 2,000 years already. That's the invitation of Jesus. And guess what? When we step into it, when we lean into it, when we follow Jesus into that space, Jesus does remarkable things. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Anything that you do out of love for Christ, in love for another person, 
as a terrified, unqualified, weak faith, uneducated idiot just trying to live the love of Jesus into the life of another human being, every single thing that we do, None. Paul says, none of it will be in vain. None of it will be wasted energy. All of it will echo into eternity. In fact, Jesus says, if you perform the very smallest act of compassion and kindness that a human being can perform, you give a cup of cold water to a little kid. That simple act of giving a cup of cold water to a little kid because of your love for Jesus and your love for this kid, that act, Jesus says, you will be rewarded in eternity. That will, that will reverberate for all of eternity. Simple acts of kindness get woven into the fabric of the kingdom of God that is coming in our world. It becomes a part of what God is doing here among us. And the sum total of all of those little cups of water that are given becomes unimaginably greater than each individual one on its own. Um, Jesus says, John 14, 12. He says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Jesus says, you're going to do greater stuff than I did. He doesn't mean you're going to be more miraculous than me. You're going to out-miracle Jesus. You're going to out-Jesus Jesus. You can't be more Jesus-y than Jesus. But what he means is as a community of people filled by the Spirit, living out a love for Christ and a love for people in these everyday deeds of love and compassion and mercy and justice and kindness, the sum total effect of all of that love being poured out individually and as a community on the world, you will accomplish more to bring the kingdom of God into the world than I was able to do in my lifetime. Now, outside of the fact that Jesus died and was raised and made everything possible by defeating the power of evil. He just means that what Jesus was able to accomplish in his lifetime in terms of bringing healing and hope into people's lives, the church, us, terrified, unqualified, weak-faithed, uneducated idiots committing small, everyday deeds of love in Jesus' name. The accumulated effect of that will be to change literally the entire world. That's what Jesus is inviting us into. About 50 years ago, a guy by the name of Lauren Easley wrote a, an essay called The Star Thrower. Maybe some of you have heard this story. It was a part of the essay, but the story goes like this. Once upon a time, there was an old man who used to go to the ocean to do his writing. He had a habit of walking on the beach every morning before he began his work. And early one morning, he was walking along the shore after a big storm had passed. And he found the vast beach littered with starfish as far as the eye could see, stretching in both directions. Off in the distance, the old man noticed a small boy approaching. As the boy walked, he paused every so often. As he grew closer, the man could see that he was occasionally bending down to pick up an object and to throw it into the sea. The boy came closer still and the man called out, Good morning! May I ask what it is that you're doing? And the boy paused and he looked up. And he replied, I'm throwing starfish into the ocean. The tide has washed them up on the beach and they can't return to the sea by themselves, the youth replied. And when the sun gets high, they will die unless I throw them back in the water. The old man replied, there must be tens of thousands of starfish on this beach. I'm afraid you won't really be able to make much of a difference. 
The boy bent down, picked up yet another starfish and threw it as far as he could into the ocean. And then he turned and smiled and said, it made a difference to that one. This is the invitation of Jesus. It's not complicated or hard. That we, because Christ has died and was raised, to break the power of sin, to, trans, to forgive us and to transform our lives, that we would leave, leave, live into a love for Christ and a love for the world and as terrified, unqualified, weak-faithed, uneducated idiots ordinary folk commit everyday deeds of love. God will be at work and he will change the world. May we be the kinds of people who follow the prompting of God and as ordinary people live our everyday deeds into the world just like the folks in the video. Let's watch. My name is Joanne. My name is Haley. Kelly. Bev. Jonathan. Haiti. My name is Raymond. <laughs> my name is Kelly and my everyday deed. And my everyday deed. And my everyday deed is. My everyday deed is to try and help people in the shelter connect their lives with stories from the past in scripture. Putting a little love and hope into every jar of Southridge Jam. Hanging out with our Caribbean friends and arranging rides for workers to medical appointments. It's being an intentional friend with Karen Dixon. It's helping build confidence in young girls in our community. My everyday deed is setting up for women's coffee. Relieving pain and suffering by providing complimentary care to our shelter residents. Is sharing my toys with my neighbors. Is encouraging people's creativity. Serving and preparing breakfast every Wednesday morning at the shelter and adding a little freshness every week. I'm Vicky's gopher most of the time. Offering help to people who look like they might need it. My everyday deed is baking cookies for the men's coffee hour on Wednesdays. And my everyday deed is to find as many opportunities as I can to connect shelter community. My name is Hannah and my everyday deed is trying my hardest to include whoever I can. And my everyday deed is writing letters to my friends Daisy and Raphael. Is recognizing the hurt in the world and helping out in any way I can. Being a good listener, whether it's my students, my family, or anyone that will talk to me. Helping those um, here in our own town and in Ontario that are blind or partially sighted with everyday things and helping them to grow in their confidence and their skills with everyday life. Helping to create a safe and loving environment in the nursery every single week. Participating in the soul food program at the shelter every Wednesday morning. Providing frequent chiropractic care to shelter residents. Being a host parent to international exchange students. Brightening people's day with a bit of baking whenever I can. 